1: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by New York State Senator-elect Julia Salazar. Thanks for coming on and congrats on your victory.
2: Thank you so much, Jordan. I'm happy to be on.
1: So on Tuesday, Democrats managed to finally flip the New York State Senate, giving us a trifecta with both chambers of the legislature and the governorship. What exactly does that mean for the future of progressive politics?
2: Yeah, it's deeply promising for uh, the future of progressive politics in New York State, um, and and particularly our progressive legislative priorities. As you probably know, um, the Independent Democratic Conference, um, or the IDC, was um, a power-sharing agreement, um, a group of Democrats, most of whom were were voted out in this election cycle who were maintaining um, a a constructed Republican majority in the state Senate for the last several years. Um, and and as a result, we're obstructing longtime efforts to pass really important progressive legislation everything from the DREAM Act to defend our undocumented and immigrant neighbors to, to passing the Reproductive Health Act, numerous other uh, legislative priorities for progressives in New York. So it, um, it's, it's wonderful that. We have not only gained a majority in the state Senate um, and, and therefore in, in, both, um, in both chambers now of the state legislature, but we actually have a really strong majority. We uh, will be going in with um, 39 solid Democratic seats, um, and, and we hope to finally pass a lot of legislation that has been, has been held up by the Republicans.
1: And what are your thoughts on Governor Cuomo? He just won re-election. He got through a primary battle with Cynthia Nixon, who ran to the left of him. Do you see him as an ally or more of a potential impediment to a progressive agenda?
2: Yeah, I think that based on Governor Cuomo's record and what we have seen over the last several years, including his relationship to the, the IDC, the, the conference that I just mentioned, uh, I think that there will be some challenges in working with Cuomo to pass progressive legislation. Uh, there's also, he's, he's um, made some, some gestures of, of goodwill. I saw that today, uh, his, his office announced that they were uh, determined to finally pass. They actually said that they will, that we will pass um, through the state legislature in the new session, green light legislation. This is also something that has been fought for by progressives for a long time to, to guarantee access to driver's licenses for everyone, regardless of immigration status. So I think that uh, at least so far, it's yet to be seen. Um, we'll see when we're sworn in in January uh, what what the dynamic is like working with with the governor's office to finally pass progressive legislation. But I think that regardless, uh, we're going in with such a strong progressive mandate uh, after these elections that that I think inevitably uh, that the governor will have to to recognize that and honor the will of um, of the electorate and of the legislature.
1: And your race in particular, your primary, had some pretty big ideological stakes. You were not challenging an IDC member, um, but you were primarying an incumbent from the left. Could you explain why you chose to jump into that race in the first place and what your victory meant?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I live in, in North Brooklyn, I live in Bushwick, and a couple years ago uh, was a little, was, was involved and, and supportive of uh, the previous challenger to Senator DeLon, the senator who I just defeated in the, in the primary, the, his challenger was Debbie Medina, a longtime tenant organizer who was from South Williamsburg and a, a community leader who ran also to DeLon's left and uh, similarly, as, as, I, as I did after her, uh, ran making making rent laws and housing justice and tenants' rights the focus of her campaign, particularly because the senator in our district had really just repeatedly for for years for for decades actually, including his time in the city council as well, had really failed to advocate for tenants in Albany uh, and had had obstructed the efforts of advocates to to finally fight to to protect people. In North Brooklyn, we are really disproportionately affected by the housing crisis, and thousands of people are being displaced every year really because of, of deregulation and uh, a lack of, of protections for tenants and families. Um, and, and Debbie ran a really strong campaign and an inspiring campaign that I was involved in. I was hoping to see someone run again against DeLon um, in this election cycle. At the beginning of this year, uh, I was still working full-time as a community organizer for a nonprofit in Manhattan. I was on my way to work when a friend who, who's deeply involved in North Brooklyn politics and a fellow DSA member, Democratic Socialist of America member, reached out to me and raised the question of who's going to run against DeLon. And I said, wow, yeah, someone has to run against DeLon. But I didn't even consider that it would be me. I had never thought about running for office before. My role, uh, my full-time job was was a combination of, of um, organizing members of the organization around specifically police accountability and criminal legal reform and lobbying elected officials at the city and state level to, to do the right thing um, and to, to pass legislation that would have a... a Positive, transformative effect on our communities, and uh, it's it was exhausting, at least to to have that relationship with legislators. So I, at any rate, I didn't, I never thought that I would be on the other side or or seeking to replace them myself, but had long been thinking about. The need for us to finally have people in office who are actually accountable to our community, who who actually came from the movement, who had organizing experience, uh, who were not corrupted by private interests. The state senator who who previously held this seat, uh, Senator Dillon, took a an enormous amount of money from the real estate lobby, more than almost any sitting state senator, and it. The, the effects of that were really reflected in his, his votes uh, over the last two decades and his his lack of will to respond to tenants' needs. So when a friend asked me initially, I was very skeptical But after, after a couple of months of thinking about it and getting closer and closer to really the threshold to decide and need to commit to running, I finally said, well... We can't wait any longer. We can't wait another two years for us to finally have a representative in Albany in um, in North Brooklyn who will advocate for us. So um, I I also knew that I would have the support of a movement behind me um, and, and particularly of the Democratic Socialists of America, which I've been a member of for an active member of for the last couple of years. And knowing that I had that support, I committed to running. Uh, and it's been a, a sprint ever since. <laughs>
1: So there's a lot I'd like to follow up upon there. First off, we've heard a lot about democratic socialism since you and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez both had big upset wins. How exactly do you define democratic socialism and what was your involvement with the DSA prior to your run?
2: Absolutely. To me, democratic socialism, particularly in, in the context of uh, the capitalist kingdom, uh, so to speak, uh, within our, our economy and our society, democratic socialism really means fighting uh, to make sure that everyone, every New Yorker, that, that every person uh, has access to the resources, that has has the resources needed in order to not only just survive in, in our society, but to thrive and to have autonomy and control over our own destinies. So that's pretty, that's somewhat vague, but in a more concrete way, it means, it means believing that housing is a human right, that healthcare is a human right, that these things um, should not rely on the market uh, or, or on, on what is profitable, but rather that we have in, in, our, in our highly developed society, we have the resources and the collective will to make sure that everyone is, is cared for and is empowered, uh, particularly um, those who have been who have been systemically marginalized um, in our society. Uh, I think that this really guides the work of the Democratic Socialists of America um, an, an organization that I joined in um, in the middle of 2016 and became actively involved in like like many like many young people uh, in the wake of Trump's election and and saying, okay, we really need to not only continue the, the work that that we're doing in our communities, but we need to fight to build an alternative to, uh, the way the way politics is is being done uh, on the left, particularly in the Democratic Party, that we needed to to build a, a stronger alternative that actually captured the the politics of of the electorate, because it didn't seem that that there was someone speaking for us. Um, and and so that was initially how I became involved in the DSA. I have been super involved in the the New York City chapter and in the North Brooklyn branch, as well as the Socialist Feminist Working Group, DSA.
1: And the key part of democratic socialism, socialism at large, is workers controlling the means of production. What exactly does that look like to you?
2: Yeah. Um, so... I also should mention that I'm, I'm a union member of um, the United Auto Workers, although I'm not an auto worker. Um, I'm a member of uh, the UAW's National Writers Union and previously worked for, for the union and have, have been very dedicated to the labor movement. I think that what it really means practically to fight for, for workers to control the means of production, it means um, fighting to empower worker cooperatives it means empowering workers so that we we're fighting against exploitation we are fighting so that um the people who are doing the least amount of of labor will no longer be reaping most of the products of of that labor right that that the boss is no longer should should not be making double or triple or in in most cases um in in Corporations um, in the United States making many, many times, um, hundreds or thousands of times the salary of um, of an everyday worker for the business. So I think it, it means fighting, uh, practically speaking, policy wise, fighting for fairer wages, fighting to make sure that the very wealthy, the one percent, and and the wealthiest in our society are. Paying their fair share of taxes, um, and and that the tax burden isn't on um, on working people, uh, and making sure that that workers are protected uh, by unions and and by labor law, um, and by by any means possible.
1: So, in terms of a living wage, fifteen dollars has been the popular proposal that progressives are making, but in many areas, that simply isn't enough. To ensure housing security, food security, um, and the basic living standards that we're talking about, what does a fair wage look like to you?
2: Um, a fair wage to me, it, I guess it, it can depend on on the place. I think that a fifteen dollar minimum wage is is absolutely essential, um, and I was delighted to see the fight for fifteen. Win in New York State. I think that we, we definitely have to keep pushing. Uh, it's still harder. It's it's very very difficult to live um, on even even working full time on a fifteen dollar minimum wage in, in many of our communities, including in, in North Brooklyn. And we know that it's it's possible to to guarantee a higher wage for workers. Recently, just this year, um, just a few months ago, uh, RWDSU won a, a drastic increase in the minimum wage for workers in New York City area airports, for example. Uh, union members um, for who people who are actually who are members of 32BJ and Unite Here, uh, Local 100, they won, I, I believe it was an $18 minimum wage. I think that, that we need to continue to fight to make sure that everybody is, is paid a wage that actually allows them to Live in dignity, and I think I think even beyond in in addition to fighting for a a universally fair uh, minimum wage, we need to be fighting to make sure that everybody has has the benefits that they need. Because even if you if if we do increase the minimum wage, um, if people still aren't able to, um, if their employer isn't providing health care, um, and the state certainly isn't providing providing health care or a way for them to, to get the benefits that they need, then then the wage isn't going to be enough and, and people are going to continue to spend all of our of our salaries on, on health care, on benefits in, in the case of North Brooklyn on exponentially rising rents. Uh, so it's really critical that we continue to fight for a minimum wage and for a living wage for all workers including tipped workers.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
2: And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown.
0: Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show.
1: Earlier, you mentioned your work with criminal
0: justice and
1: police reform. Could you tell us a bit more about that, as well as how you'd like to translate that work into legislating in the state Senate?
2: Um, I previously was working for an organization called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice that uh, has been working in New York City for about 28 years. Um, and we were part of a much broader coalition called the Community United for Police Reform Coalition of um, of community-based organizations, unions, legal aid attorneys, et cetera, who were fighting to hold the NYPD accountable as well as fighting to end mass incarceration um, and, and fighting to protect people who are really disproportionately affected Negatively affected by the criminal justice system in New York State,
1: and while this isn't, to my knowledge, a national DSA position, I know some chapters and many members support the abolition of police as well as prisons. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think I think that you know the the U.S. has has the highest incarceration rate for the population in in the world. Um, and so it's going to, it's, it is deeply challenging um, <laughs> to try to think about, to conceptualize what a complete end to prisons in the U.S. will look like. But I think that, that it should be the goal that we need to transition to a model of restorative justice, that we need to recognize that, that what we're currently doing in New York city and state and at the federal level, um, in response to crime, um, and, and, corrections is, is not working. Um, that in, in many ways it actually just recreates the problems that cause it in the first place. So I think that, yeah, I would, I would support ultimately the goal of abolishing prisons. Um, and I think that, that similarly, we need to be fighting first and foremost against, um, against violent policing practices um, and, and move toward a model where our communities are, um, are autonomous and that, that, that there's leadership, but that we, we have community-based solutions to crime and, and to community safety rather than, than relying on um, an armed police force.
1: One proposal of yours I think is really interesting and important is decriminalizing sex work. That's not a position we see a whole lot of politicians make. Why do you think that this is the right move?
2: Yeah, I think I see the decriminalization and ultimately legalization of sex work as um, both a, a labor issue, a workers' rights issue, and a um, criminal justice, criminal legal reform issue. In my district in particular, um, in, in North Brooklyn, we see in East New York and Bushwick, the highest rate of people who are arrested in all of New York City, the highest rate of people being arrested for a charge that's referred to as loitering for the purpose of prostitution. So essentially, the, the highest rate of criminalization of sex work in New York City is, is in our own communities you know, I, I received more political education about this from sex worker advocates, uh, during the course of my campaign, um, and, and was really motivated to, to address it, seeing how it was disproportionately affecting my community, seeing how 94% of the people who are arrested for, with that charge are black women, um, which is, which is just outrageous. Um, I, I see the Decriminalization of, of sex work in practice as being deeply discriminatory and, and ultimately counterproductive or at, at the very least not, not helpful to the goal of, of ending gender-based violence, gender-based discrimination, um, human trafficking. If we really want to, to make our communities safer and to empower workers, decriminalizing sex work is one of the important first steps. Um, And I think that we're seeing more and more people, even on an international level, the Labour Party in the UK recently launched a decrim campaign, local um, candidates and electeds in New York have started to talk about the decriminalization of sex work more openly. Uh, So I think that we're making progress and soon it it will be normalized as it should be.
1: So with the sex work community and the other communities who supported you in your run, what will you do to stay accountable to them and ensure that there is open and continual communication as you do get busier as a state senator?
2: Yeah, I think that for any state senator, this comes down to a couple of things. Um, When I I ran for office, uh, I made the, the commitment, um, and have maintained the commitment, um, of never taking money from, from corporations or from, from the real estate lobby, so that I would be independent of private interests and would truly be accountable to uh, to my constituents and to our communities. So I think I think that that was that was important and will remain important even as I transition from from being a candidate to being a state legislator. Uh, that it's ultimately it's about who I remain accountable to and who has my ear. The way that I will need to implement that in practices is how I form my, my staff, uh, especially in the district. We want to give all of our, of our resources really to, to communicating with the community constantly, um, to organizing, I'll have organizers on staff to a model that I think we're going to see more and more of for, for elected officials to be actively engaging with the community. Um, it means that my time when I'm when I'm not in Albany um, and directly working conferencing and working on legislation, I will be in the district and spending time time in the community um, so that I always have my ear to the ground.
1: When we think about state politics, we usually don't talk about foreign policy, but given your some of your positions, there has been uh, a fair deal of attention put on your foreign policy. Could you tell us about that?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I think that uh, it's true that as a state legislator, I don't expect to have um, a lot of influence on foreign policy. Uh, and additionally, I, I have... Sort of two perspectives on this as a democratic socialist. One is that I, the belief or the saying that, that all politics is local, that I want to, I think, I think it's, I will be most effective in focusing on the constituents who I represent and what their needs are and, and what our priorities are as a district. However, at the same time, recognizing as a democratic socialist that we are part of an international movement and and that what we do and especially living in the United States and in the and the wealthiest countries in the world and most powerful a country that has has troops and and influence um, and and a, a presence in hundreds of countries around the world we have a responsibility to to be aware of that and do what we can in our capacity as as elected officials to change it um, and to make sure that U.S. foreign policy is is more humane um, and more just. I want to really just encourage people to to be aware of how, for example, the contracts that we have at the state level are they with are they with um, foreign corporations, with with international corporations, and and how is that affecting not only people in the United States, workers are are we losing are we losing jobs overseas are we are we hurting our own economy additionally are we fueling unfair harmful labor practices overseas How, what is the role that the u.s military is playing in other countries including the country most of my family lives lives in colombia in south america um and i've i've uh witnessed to Throughout the course of my life, the effect of, um, of things like Planned Colombia and, and a very conservative U.S. foreign policy in South America have had, what it really comes down to is recognizing our role and what we, what we are able to do, even as local elected officials. And, and we'll see what effect that has and how it comes up for me as the state senator.
1: And your position on Israel and Palestine, in particular caused a fair bit of controversy. It even called into question elements of your background. Could you talk about that as well as your experiences as a Jewish progressive of color?
2: so I when I was in when I was in college, I went to Israel and Palestine uh, for the first time when I was nineteen. The experience, I had never really challenged um, what I had been taught, what I had learned, been exposed to about um, about the situation on the ground um, in, in Israel and, and the Palestinian territories led me, when I returned, when I was still in college, when I returned to the U.S. to become actively involved in a Palestinian solidarity activism, as well as pro-peace um, activism around, specifically around the, the occupation in, in Israel Palestine. And I, I studied it in college simultaneously. I was and remain part of, um, a vibrant progressive Jewish community in New York. Um, and of course, there, there is a lot of controversy and, and, and emotions run high around the issue of Israel in the Jewish community. So, so I think that that's, that's where the tension is for me, it isn't a an obvious tension. Uh, I think that, as an american jew um and certainly as as a jew of color, as a woman of color, I am determined to to speak out against oppression wherever it occurs, um especially when the united states when when our state department, when our government play a critical role in upholding um, an oppressive occupation in in the Middle East. You know, a lot of also a lot of the, the organizing that um, I was involved in, in in college, whether it be um, through If Not Now or Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, was really was really meaningful to me um, and remains meaningful to me, even even though I am mostly my my focus has shifted and um I really my capacity is limited to advocating for my community in North Brooklyn I definitely still maintain that as as Americans and potentially as as Jews we have a responsibility um to speak out for the oppressed and and to recognize um that the relationship between that and and what the Jewish people have faced historically yeah I think I think that there's a a pretty powerful lobby for for US interests in Israel that wants to to silence uh American Jews who speak out or who are critical of of Israel and the Israeli government my being a Jew of color from an unconventional background um, that it made me uh, particularly susceptible to to their criticism. But I think there are a lot of other, you know, I'm a member of, of Fredge of Jews for Racial Economic Justice, which is a Jews of Color caucus, doesn't particularly focus on Israel-Palestine, but is um, deeply progressive and, and committed to fighting injustice here and, um, and globally, and and that there are many other Jews of Color who, who are really in this movement together. And so I'm, I'm just one of many.
1: And lastly, how can folks connect with you, particularly your constituents?
2: Well, I will continue to, to be engaged on, on social media. Um, it's, it'll go beyond the campaign. I intend to be super present, um, continue to be super present in North Brooklyn um, and, and in my district. I want to be as accessible as possible. So tweet at me, um, send me, send me a DM. Um, sometimes it takes a, a little bit of time. Hopefully, you know, th- things are becoming more manageable now that uh, we're we're closing out the election cycle um, and transitioning to everyday life again. <laughs> but yeah, I I really my I mean, my favorite thing is to engage with people about ideas, um, and and certainly with other young people. We're in this together. So I hope everyone will feel free to reach out.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. And we hope to get you on again after you're inaugurated to the State Senate.
2: Yeah, that that would be wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, of course. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.